Are you self-employed and looking to get a home loan? Do you want to buy a property with your super fund? Or has your mortgage application been knocked back and you need a solution? At Better Mortgage Management, we specialize in solutions for home and investment loan borrowers. With over 50 loan products and 23 years lending experience, we have the flexibility and expertise to help you achieve your property dreams. Call us at 1300 857 275 to discuss how we can help you. This podcast is brought to you by Better Mortgage Management. Welcome to Season 2 of Cancer Culture Podcast. This podcast is not just about cancer. It's about the people whose lives have been profoundly affected by it. Throughout this season, we will hear from individuals who have faced unimaginable challenges from the relentless battles against this disease to the heartbreaking losses, sincere, real stories that need to be heard. Cancer Culture is a place of refuge where we try to provide insight, empathy, and a space for authentic storytelling. This podcast isn't an easy one, and it's definitely not for everyone. It is filled with moments of sadness, reflection, and inspiration, but also highlights profound growth, connection, and hope. I'm Jackie Cowan, and I'm your host. I'm definitely not a medical practitioner, but a normal 27-year-old chick who survived the hardships of cancer. If cancer has touched your life in any way, whether you're a patient, a caregiver, or someone who has experienced the pain of losing a loved one, reach out to me, reach out to our guests, and let us be a source of strength and support for one another. So, with gratitude in our hearts and a shared commitment to understanding and compassion, Let us honour the incredible individuals who have chosen to share their stories throughout season one and two. Through cancer culture, we can attempt to navigate the complexities of cancer, celebrate the triumphs and stand in solidarity with those who face this disease with unwavering courage. Welcome to season two of Cancer Culture Podcast. Today we're joined by a guest, Anne. How are you, Anne? I'm well, thanks, Jack. That's good. So... We are mutual friends through work, you could say. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And so we're currently recording from Port Lincoln. How long have you been in Port Lincoln? Oh, gosh, I've been in Port Lincoln for over 40 years now. So I feel like I'm a local now. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, 100%? (laughs) 10 years off? Depends depends who you're talking to. Absolutely. Yeah, you've done your time. So can you give our listeners a little bit of perspective in regards to who you are slash what you do? Sure. So I came over to Port Lincoln originally teaching. I'm also from a regional town, so it was a good fit for me when I first came over, expecting as a young 21-year-old to be here for a short stint and just absolutely fell in love with the place and have stayed on and got married here and raised my children here who are now off all over the world doing amazing things. Yeah, so yeah, I feel like a local. You are. (laughs) Awesome. Okay, so today we're talking about cancer, which you and I both know. And we were having a chat at work one day and we were discussing grief. Hmm. And that is something that I think took me back a little bit because I was like, oh, wow, I was stopped in my tracks, essentially. And I wanted to find out more about you as well. And it seems as though we had something in common and that is cancer. Yes. How has cancer affected you? Okay. So I'm growing up in a country GP's household. I probably had more inkling of sickness and cancer than many people of my era. So I did actually go to people's homes where people were unwell, which was a bit taboo back in the day. And I've had friends along the way who have lost due to cancer and quite young friends. Directly in my family, not too much was going on for me until my mum got very sick very suddenly. So my mum was a bit of a legend and was still snorkelling off New Guinea in her 70s and was still working at a nursing home as a nurse, which was quite funny because everyone said she was just going to transition into a bed there. But she suddenly became quite ill. So she went from bubbly, happy, doing very well to suddenly vomiting and becoming very unwell very quickly. And my father had rung me a few times and said, look, I'm just a bit worried. And eventually she ended up dehydrated, went to hospital, had a scan and she had cancer everywhere. So they actually couldn't pick out the primary cancer. And at that stage, it didn't matter anyway. There didn't need to be too many invasive tests or anything like that. There were no treatment options. So that was my first touch with someone I loved having cancer. 
And then about six years ago, my husband had a terrible accident, fell off a ladder, had very horrific injuries and went over to Adelaide to get patched up, very strong, fit man, no inkling that something was wrong. Went off to Adelaide to get put back together, got a nasty pneumonia and a scan showed that he had some worrying things going on in his lungs. They sent us back to Port Lincoln for him to get better enough to go and have some tests and went over and had some tests and showed that he had lung cancer, which was very unexpected, and acute emphysema. Also, we're totally unaware of these things. And about a week after that, he, I got him home, had a lung collapse. So the lung collapse was probably as far as we could go. We had to go back to Adelaide, and after that, all he wanted to do was come home. They couldn't do anything to help him because they knew that every, all the treatment would make him sicker and probably limit his life. So we came home and I cared for him at home with my family. Yeah. Okay. If we can, is it all right if we start off with your mum? Sure. And I kind of want to hone in. We were talking off air about how you grew up and your dad was a GP as yep. you were growing up. And so yep. what did that look like? My life was different from lots of my peers. We were a very inclusive family, so we accepted everyone for who they were. So when we saw people that were unwell, we weren't frightened of it. And I know that a couple of my friends, I remember a family's mum, was very unwell. We were able to spend time in that space and we could see that it was very important to preserve, first of all, family and also the dignity of people that were unwell. And there were a lot more acceptance around people being at home and being cared for at home than now. A lot more understanding that people could stay home, whereas now we do tend to have more a hospital system there to support. We were talking about how it was a time where people didn't get better. Yes. So when you say that, do you mean in terms of there wasn't the technology or there wasn't the assistance or the medical information that we have, obviously, that we have today. Absolutely. Yeah. So there was the, the advanced chemotherapy, radiotherapy treatments didn't look like that in those days. Particularly radiotherapy was quite brutal. People would be burnt from the radiotherapy. Even making decisions around treatment was different because you had to be very sure that it was going to support you if you had the treatment because the treatments were so difficult. Yeah. Whereas nowadays people can still work through their treatments, they can function really well through their treatments and there's a lot more hope and a lot more support around getting better and if not getting better, being able to be in a recovery model of life where it's still there but you can still live your best life. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And so your mum was 70? When... No, my mum was actually 79. Oh, wow. But she was still working. She yep. had only just stopped working because she had macular degeneration. And my father took, took comfort in the fact that she hated the idea of going blind and she was going to go blind. That, that gave him comfort when she was so sick because they'd been married for 50 well over 50 years yeah I remember when she was first diagnosed he talked to me and said oh I think perhaps there was some things she wasn't showing me and I'd noticed a few things but the things he noticed I laugh about this one he noticed that when they went out on their yacht these are people in their late 70s 80s when they went out on their little yacht she couldn't climb in the back of the boat after she'd been for a swim yeah (laughs) we didn't pay a lot of attention to that because most 79 year olds aren't climbing back into the boat up a ladder after they've had a swim so it was but it was subtle things that he had noticed that he picked up afterwards so it I always encourage everyone to really be aware of their bodies and their loved ones and how they present so that we can actually catch some of those very early symptoms. I suspect with my mum, things were extremely advanced before she had any symptoms. Yeah, It's funny because it might sound silly to some people, but your dad would have known her better than anyone else. Yes. And if he noticed that was happening, like her not being able to get back on the back of the boat... He was genuinely, like he genuinely yeah, meant that. He did. Yeah. And, and, he, and he didn't, I was a bit concerned he would be hard on himself about that. But he also, had, being a GP, had a very holistic view of life and death. And he was very concerned about her losing her sight. He said that he thought that would, because she loved to read, she was very intelligent, loved to read. Lots of things that gave her a lot of pleasure mm. were going to be more difficult for her particularly because of her age. Other younger people losing their sight are good at compensating, but she was at the stage where she'd got quite frail quite suddenly. I had noticed that. But once again, put down to old age. Yeah. Okay. And so did she pass away? 
Yes, yeah, not she, too long after no. that. No, she basically was diagnosed, and I remember it was a very big shock for all of us but, and because she always seemed so indestructible. And I remember speaking to my father on the phone and him saying, and one of my first questions was, what's the prognosis? And he just said, very bad, and there's not going to be any options. And I said, so what do you and mum want to do? And he said, she wants to come home. So I was very fortunate. We He brought her home and... I went and visited her one weekend, but we could see very quickly she was going downhill. So all my sisters, there's four sisters, all came home mm. and we helped Dad nurse her. So my dad was a, is a GP, my sister is a GP, and my other sisters came along and supported in every way they could. So it was a very – and there'd been some rifts in the family and it just brought everyone back together. And my children are very, were very close to my mother, so they were all living in Adelaide at that stage. So they spent a lot of time with her as well. Yep. And so she had was surrounded by her family, really. Mm. And she had a very, she got quite sick quite quickly. She was still quite lucid for about the first three weeks. And then the next three weeks, she just slipped in and out. And she was in a coma for probably about nearly two weeks. So oh. it shows how tough she was because she hadn't had fluids and she hadn't been eating and she still held on but passed away very peacefully with us all there. You know, we call it a good death yeah. because there was virtually no pain. She was under palliative care support. We were able to support her. But it's really important for me to say that's an exception. I feel very blessed that happened for us because that's not always the way by a long way. And when we talk about cancer and people's journeys, they're always unique. Yeah. always unique and it's really important not to compare because everybody has a different journey mm, yeah and they're so different absolutely and we did take comfort in the fact she'd had such a great life and she recognized that yeah and also that she'd had good health up until that to that point and her health was deteriorating and she was a very energetic person very loved in the community had been a wonderful volunteer lived a very full life and when people are getting older it's almost like an expected thing that eventually they will pass away yeah and so what was that time like for you? Well, I look back at it and I think it was very sad. It was very sad. But I think I was so immersed and I had a lot of help. I wasn't me trying to manage on my own. I had a lot of help with my family and I had time to go for a walk and cry and grieve. So it was a very sad time. And I remember when she died, <clears throat> it was just before Easter, which was also difficult because we'd, two of my sisters had been from interstate and they needed to get home and we had to organise a funeral. And so they had a little break and I helped did the eulogy and I helped organise the funeral. And I found that very therapeutic because mm -hmm. like I felt like I was doing something quite practical. But I think I feel like I grieved appropriately during yeah. that time. I grieved well the whole way through because I could see the change in my mum. I grieved my dad who was devastated. And I think it was such a peaceful way. And we had lots of time to sit with her and hold her hand and tell her how we felt. And she could tell us how she felt too. Although it was incredibly sad, it I feel like I, I did my grieving properly. Yeah. 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 100%. Yeah. And so is your dad still around? My dad is 93. Go, you good Living thing. independently, <laughs> learning French again at the moment. He's learnt, he's done something in French before. He's a very intelligent man. And he's, going, he's getting feral as well. Yeah. He's very, it wouldn't take very much for him to get very sick very quickly. But at the moment, he's in good health, living independently, doing everything himself, goes to exercise classes, but getting frail as well. 93. Yeah. 93 going strong. What a yeah, weapon. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And so I guess in terms of timeline, when did that happen in comparison to when you lost your partner? Yeah. So mum's mum died at the beginning of 2012. And once again, it was quite a quick time frame. So we'd had a lovely Christmas with her and it was she died early March. So it was quite a quick time frame. And my husband had his fall during 2016. Wow. Yeah. So not that far off. Not that far off, but very different ex experience. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And is it OK if I ask what happened in regards to your husband? Sure. It was a very difficult day. I was actually at work and I got a phone call from the ambulance service and I was actually in front of about 150 kids at the time and someone had come out and said, look, you need to talk to the ambulance service. So we live on a property, a little property out of town, which is quite hard to find. And the ambulance service were just ringing to say, look, your husband's had an accident. He's managed to get himself in the house and he's rung, but he's we can't work out where he is. So I was able to give them directions. Mm. And then I jumped in my car and dashed home. Work were wonderful. They would have driven me, but I said, look, I'll be fine. Completely denying that it was so serious. And I got home to two ambulances and it was a very critical scene. It's the strength of the human spirit. He'd been up in a top paddock cutting a 
branch off a tree and he was very safety conscious. The ladders was tied to the tree and he had his goggles on and he had everything ready. And he said to me afterwards, oh, I knew you'd say, what were you doing that for? Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, he got he, the branch that he cut whipped back and knocked him off the ladder. So he flew through the air about three metres and landed on his face on the ground. Oh, my God. So he had his little vehicle up there with him and he... And, but he'd injured himself terribly. So basically he'd dislocated his hip, shattered his pelvis, had multiple breaks in his arm, open break in his arm. He had broken his cheekbones. He'd broken his nose. And he got on his AV and rode it to the house where my very big ginger blue red healer <laughs> met him and helped him get into the house. Wow. So he got all the way into the house. And by the time he got into his house, the house, his adrenaline was gone because he didn't have his phone with him so he'd had to get a phone and then he'd rung the ambulance even the ambos were just saying they'd never seen anything like it before it was just that strength of spirit yeah wow. that got him there yeah so then we well, then eventually when he, they'd got him stable they took him to Port Lincoln Hospital and they sent a retrieval team over from Adelaide you can imagine I would we had no idea that there was going to be a problem that morning and so it was a very sudden change in for both of us and for my family all my children were living in Adelaide at the time and so I was eventually when we knew he was going to survive because at the beginning we didn't know whether he would. And if he hadn't got to the house, he would have died in the paddock and I would have gone home to that. So I'm very grateful. So he, the ambulances, they, they stabilised him and they retrieved him from Adelaide. My children met him in Adelaide. By then it was quite late at night. So it had been an all day stabilising him because he, I think it was about 11 in the morning they rang me. Got him to Adelaide. My kids stayed with him that night in hospital and he was okay. He'd got, they'd got his pain under a under control he's he was a very tough man and I flew over the next morning yeah so that's how our journey started really that would have been so scary and when I look back at it I just stepped out I didn't actually I didn't actually I didn't feel like it was happening because I that was my protection for myself so I just managed things have very managed it as best I could flew over the next morning of course when I got there he was in surgery and he'd been in surgery for eight hours at that stage and that was just fixing his arm so that wasn't without anything else so holy yeah so it was he was very strong tough man and that we were in hospital for about six weeks oh my goodness yeah in Adelaide and so whilst they were doing the surgery is that when they noticed that other things weren't all adding up Mm, actually it's it was a little bit later he had his arm repaired <clears throat> and then he had to have his hip he had to have a hip replacement because he damaged everything so much that they decided to replace his hip and he'd had to lie flat on his back for quite some time because of his pelvis and he got pneumonia and I knew he was really sick because he started to see things mm. and I remember getting the nursing stuff in and it was like a big panic they they actually found he had quite serious pneumonia so they sent him down for a scan and when they came back and they put him on a lot of antibiotics and then they actually did the surgery, which surprised me because mm. he was quite unwell, but they said, we have to get him off his back. And they, they didn't tell me, they told him that they thought something was going on. And he'd been very quiet and I, I was there all the time because he was couldn't feed himself or anything because he had arms in splints and goodness yep. knows what else. And eventually he said to me, look, they just think I might have a cancer in my lung. And I just did the whole denial thing, which is mm. what a lot of people do when they get that kind of diagnosis, personal or otherwise. And I said, well, how about we wait until we get the, we know what's going on. Mm. By then, he just wanted to go home. He didn't hated being in hospital. He hated the environment, although he made some very close friends because mm. back in the day we were in a ward and a man came in, young guy, he would have been 50 or so, he... He had an illness as well and they all got to chatted to each other and it was actually a lot of camaraderie in that ward. So eventually we got him to, we got home and he recovered quite well. He had, he was very good with his physio and he was starting to make good progress. But they asked us to come back and have a look at this, to check his lungs. And that was a very harrowing day. So we basically flew back. He'd lost a lot of weight because he was very hard to eat. And also he was losing unexplained weight, which was a symptom I had missed earlier on. We'll go back to that. <clears throat> anyway, we had these, we had the normal PET scans, we had the all the breathing tests, and then we went and sat in a room in a chest clinic, and the specialist explained what was going on. And I, and once again, I remember feeling very almost distant from it all because it was I was looking at these pictures of these lungs and thinking. I said to the doctor, "Are you sure that's my husband's lungs? He's been out running around the paddocks." And he said, "Yeah." He said, "One lung looks like Swiss cheese. The other lung's covered in red spots, and the red spots are cancer." So 
at that stage they said, look, we might be able to, we're thinking of maybe some chemotherapy if we can get him well enough. Yeah. We need you to go home and just re- get better, get more stronger so we can think about the options. So off we went to Adelaide and about, we were due to go back to have a, a biopsy the week after and he woke up about three o'clock in the morning and could not breathe. So we had the ambulances there again. It was a horrible night. Remember, it was raining and pouring and he was really struggling to breathe. And we got into the hospital and he had a complete lung collapse, uh, which was very harrowing for him and for me because I was sitting with him when it actually collapsed. And the doctors were fantastic and got chest drains in, you know, chest drains in. And so we had to go back to Adelaide again. So back to Adelaide, flying on the Royal Flying Doctor and, the, and thank you, Royal Flying Doctor around, amazing service. Mm-hmm. And we ended up in Adelaide and by then it was obvious he was pretty sick. So he was on oxygen and they were hoping to get the oxygen off, but that never happened. He ended up with his oxygen on permanently, which no. was very tough. But from right from the get-go, all he wanted to do was get home. And he st- his personality had changed a bit. He was getting quite grumpy, which is due to oxygen deprivation and all, everything else that was probably going on for him. And it was quite hard to manage. After four weeks there, we got sent back to Adelaide, back to Port Lincoln, and we were able to go home. Yeah. Yeah, so in case our listeners are unaware... Port Lincoln is about a seven and a seven hour drive to Adelaide. Yeah. Yeah. Half an hour flight, but yeah. an incredibly expensive one if you aren't going with the flying doctors yeah. or angel flight or beautiful organizations like that. Yeah. yeah. So what happened after that? So after that, and it was tr- really difficult because my son had moved to Germany with his partner and his son and he came because when he went we didn't realize we didn't know about the cancer my husband was getting better and everything was going along just fine and so they moved they went to Germany so he had he came back for a while and then it looked like things were going okay so back he went to Germany and my my oldest daughter who was and my all my children were amazing they all and their partners were also incredible they were so supportive and so they came back and forth to help me, but he had to. He decided he really needed to be at home. I'd gone back to work after his fall because we thought he was getting better, and we had lots of support. And they said, "Go back to work; it'll be fine." But that's then I actually stopped working. I didn't work. I became full time carer. He couldn't be left alone, and he was on oxygen. And oxygen, the oxygen made him feel a lot better. So mm-hmm. he actually he got back to more his normal personality. But it was tricky. We had one stage we had a three-day power failure and of course he was on oxygen so it was quite a complicated time but I had my children all there helping and so he stayed home but he did get very he got very obsessive which is not uncommon and he really wanted to get some things done at that stage yeah like what well that was tricky because he couldn't physically do them so he had to organize other people to do them and people would show up at my place to do random things like dig whole rocks out of the road and of course we had to run over and tell them please don't dig that rock out or we won't be able to get off on and off our property (laughs) he had quite a list and he got through most of them i think he got through all of them the very last thing he had on his list was he wanted my youngest daughter to get cruise control in her car because she kept getting speeding tickets it was pretty funny (laughs) so he ended up she ended up getting that and it was almost like it was the last tick of the box and he relaxed then because it had got really difficult he wanted to go out all the time and do things he couldn't do and it was very difficult for all of us yeah thought he felt very much that I was stopping him doing what he wanted and it was it was really tough it was that was probably the toughest time because he's he was a very gentle kind man and he was quite obsessive and quite difficult Mm. it was quite difficult yeah but something that happened in that time, which is a really positive thing, was the community just wrapped around us. And one day, one day, one morning, because we have a beautiful view from our place, and one morning about 20 people, 30 people just showed up out of the blue. And I remember saying, what's going on? <laughs> and they had organised to come and trim all our trees off and to make sure that he had his view. And they brought morning tea up and they just got to work and they worked all morning and just did this incredible job of transforming that place so that my husband had his view so he could sit in a chair and watch the view. And we had so much of that during our times, even though it was such a difficult time. We had so much love sent to us from everyone around us and so much support, and it just really lifted all of us. The kids' friends came over to visit him because they'd got close to him. They'd come over from Adelaide to visit, and people just from everywhere he'd come to visit and he really wanted to see people that were important to him before he died so 
we had people travel from interstate and come and spend an afternoon. And so we felt very wrapped around and very cared for. Yeah. Did they, did the medical practice, pra- practitioners, sorry, did they allude to the fact that he wasn't going to get better or did they just tell the, him? No, they were very direct. They were very direct. And, yep. and I'm, I remember when we went to our local GP, he was unaware of how serious it had been. And we had an appointment and I just was watching his face and I said to him, so I will go back a step because we did have a bit of a difficulty. After, after we went home, it was a bit like a silence from the Adelaide Hospital and there was no follow-up so I was waiting for an oncologist appointment because at that stage I didn't know that there was no treatment options and and my husband was very accepting he said look they won't be able to do anything I said no but we need to have the oncologist appointment I remember getting ringing the oncology department at the hospital we'd been in and they were so apologetic they said we're really sorry we had no idea what what's going on here they got onto the chess team and they rang us and said they rang me and said oh we've got an appointment tomorrow afternoon in Adelaide can you get there and I just said to them guys, I've got a husband who can't get out of bed who's on oxygen. I said, we can't just get on a plane and come over. And they were immediately organised a Zoom meeting. And that was lovely because that's when we had a team meeting at the hospital. So it wasn't just us. We Mm. had the palliative care team. We had medical people there. We had oncology team. Everyone was there with us. So that was because that was a hard conversation. We had a wonderful oncologist who just said it as it was. So she basically just said, look, this is where we're at. She said, if you miraculously regain a lot of your strength, then you may be able to have some chemo. And my husband was very hostile in that appointment. And then suddenly he said to her, so you're going to make me go back to hospital? She said, no, that's your choice. You don't have to ever go back to hospital again if you don't want to. And she said, and he said, well, what about if it was you? What would you do? And she said, I wouldn't have anything because it's going to make you sicker than before. And if you come to Adelaide for treatment, you'll be in Adelaide. And he said, and he just, the sun came out for him. He just went, oh, great. And then after that, it was fine. Okay. So he had a real fear that he would be put in a situation that he didn't want. Yeah. So choice is really important. Yeah. He sounds like an incredible man. Yeah. In terms of his wishes and the fear of that not being able to be achieved. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like and he also had a very strong religious belief, which really supported him through that time. It gave him a lot of comfort. Yeah. And really he felt that he didn't feel frightened of, as frightened of death as many people were. Mm-hmm. And I think it, it gave him the opportunity to put his affairs in order. He managed to have his legal appointments. And I always say that to everyone that I know that's not all that well. Just do that for yourself and because then that's one less worry if something does change. Yeah. Yeah, so he managed to put his affairs in order. He saw people that he really wanted. And I was very grateful to him because he... He got very sick just before Christmas and I called the kids and one of my oldest daughters had gone home for a break because it was tough. And uh, and she was due to come back on a few days before Christmas and I nearly rang her and said, I think you need to come now. But I, And he said, well, how long's Christmas? And I said, Christmas is Sunday, so this was Friday. And he said, I can do Christmas. So he almost rallied. People have very amazing what they can pull out from the depths. So he rallied. He hadn't eaten anything for weeks and very little fluid, if any. And he rallied and he so he, the kids all got home and we had Christmas together. And it, we, he had a bit of seafood and he had a half a glass of champagne, hadn't eaten or drunk anything for weeks. And the next, that night went into a coma. Oh, wow. So it was almost, it was a completely... It was actually a very precious Christmas. I didn't keep photos because of how he looked and I didn't want to have that sort of front and centre of my life. But it was a very, it was, a, I'm so glad we got through Christmas so Christmas didn't become the focus for this. Yeah. And we have, so he died on the 28th, so he hung on until the 28th and very peacefully. And, yeah, and so we got through it, yeah. And so was that 2016? Yeah. Yeah. At the end of 2016. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That is a massive couple of years for you. Yeah, it has been a massive couple of years. Mm. Yeah. But and lots of positives too. Yeah, of course. Yeah. But some, it's hard to see them in the midst of everything. Oh, and yeah. Absolutely. And I think the other thing is that you do look back and think about symptoms. Mm. And he, when my eldest daughter got married, he deliberately lost quite a bit of weight to be all schmick for the wedding. But then he started to lose his appetite. And I, I kept thinking, I kept saying to him, you're getting very thin. He said, oh, I'm just not all that hungry. There's a red flag right there. Mm. But I just, you just don't think about it when you're living with someone. He seemed well, he was still doing everything he normally did. But that's a, definitely a red flag, appetite loss and a lot of weight loss. And and some of his behaviours had also changed. He'd got a lot more obsessive, which is also a symptom of not having enough oxygen. And I remember speaking to the doctor at one stage and he said, yeah, 
he was booked in to have a chest X-ray and he never had it. So I do wonder how what much how much he actually knew. And I did actually ask the specialist, look, he was booked in for a chest X-ray. She said, probably would have made very little difference because of the emphysema as well. The accident hastened things. He could have gone on for a little while and then I did say to the oncologist, how would that have looked? And she said it probably would have got very sick very quickly Yeah. and not really had this lead up. Well, yeah. you wouldn't have had any idea. No. And in many ways it's probably good that it did happen the way in which it did because then you could, as you said, he could get his affairs in order, say his goodbyes, be prepared for that. Absolutely. And I think he said that too because I remember saying to him because I could have come home from work that night and he would have died in the paddock because he would have lost so much blood. And I'm very grateful that didn't happen. And then I thought, well, what would have been easier on him? Would it have been easier for him just to have died suddenly or to have this prolonged journey? And in our situation, and this is certainly not a normal situation, everyone's situation is different. In our situation, he did, he had a little pain. Having said that, he managed the pain of the accident, which people said was probably the most excruciating pain you could have. Yeah. So it's all relative, but he was comfortable and he was able to spend time with people. So he, he was pleased he had that opportunity. Yeah. 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 So one of our first episodes in season one was a one of my mates by the name of Gemma. She was a carer for her grandparents um, throughout their cancer journey. And I know people have reached out to me who are also carers for other family members, yeah. whether it be a sibling or a parent or something like that. Do you have any coping mechanisms or mm. tips for people that are currently caring for loved ones? Yeah. I think, first of all, I always I would always recommend to reach out to Carers SA. Carers in every state. Every state has a carers organisation and they're there to support the carer yeah. because carers do it. And people can be quite dismissive and say, well, just go and take a, have a break and have a walk. It's very difficult to have a break and have a walk if you haven't got help. Actually accepting help is something that is really important and allowing yourself giving yourself permission that if your partner or your person you're caring for is having a sleep or someone's there to go and have a coffee with a friend or to actually get out of the glass house because mm. you need your brain needs a little rest from it all. Yeah, so basically breaks, I would say, would be the biggest thing and also getting help because there is help from the hospitals and the community to support. You can get help with cleaning and with caring for that person. It might be a palliative care nurse or someone comes in to support but actually do ask and get someone to help you make a list. Yeah, 100%. Mm, yeah. So in terms of after your partner passing away, yeah. what was that time in your life like for you? Well, I think I probably made a lot of mistakes looking back. I thought I was invincible and I had, because of the trauma, there was a lot of trauma involved in our journey because the accident and getting home and opening that front door to see what I saw was something that really came back to get me later. And also the lung collapse and, and was quite, it was very traumatic. I didn't address any of that at the time because I was just managing. And I think it's a lot of carers do just manage and it's good to actually get help along the way as well as afterwards. I was very fortunate that I had my very amazing kids and their partners who were there every minute. But I also took it on myself to protect them from as much as I could from what was happening. So I did a lot of the medical stuff because you, were, you do need to manage medications and all sorts of things. So I, I'd built myself a pretty full-on armour set by the time he did, did die. And I remember the funeral was a bit of a blur where he was buried where he wanted to be buried, which was away from Port Lincoln. And we were able to follow his wishes to the letter. So that's of great comfort for carers as much as possible. But the caveat to that is if something is too hard, you can't manage it, you have to, get, you have to make a decision, which would be very difficult because you're under a lot of pressure to look after the person's wishes. But caring for someone at home is no walk in the park. Yeah. It is, it's the harder option. For a long time after he died, I said to my kids, I never want to put you through that. I'm not going to ever do that. So you, I'll go somewhere. And they had a bit of a smile and said, we'll see. But that's a knee-jerk reaction. To, and I've talked to other people in the same boat and they're going, I'd never do that to my kids. So it's that whole, yeah, seeking, reaching out, getting some help not thinking you have to do it all by yourself and that you're invincible. I think that's really important because I came out the other end and went, oh, I'm going to go straight back to work full time and I'll be fine. Yeah. So I did. So I went back to a high pressure job, very long hours. I thought I was doing wonderfully well until I started to find that I was starting to not know where I was or what I was doing. And eventually I had to take a break. Yeah. And so I wish I had done that at the beginning. Back in the day, people, we used to have morning time where people would dress up in black clothes and 
actually really em- embrace the grief. Whereas nowadays there's a bit of an attitude of let's get on with it now. It's done, so get on with it. So it took me probably nearly 12 months before I had to take a break and get some support. Mm. Um, yeah, Which is in many ways not the wrong thing to do. No. It's just a, a part coping. of learning and coping and... Yeah. Yeah, and I don't. I think in many situations we never know what the right thing is no, to do. We don't. Right, you're just oh, yeah. full steam ahead. Yeah. yeah, and for me that was the wrong. But for other people, it's the right. There's no wrong or right with any of this. Yeah, I think, and also I dealt with a lot of ageism. I dealt with a lot of ageism, and particularly being a woman. Mm-hmm. So there was when I first lost my husband, there was a lot of people that sort of thought I have a property. Oh, you have to get off the place. You have to sell it. You have to move close to your kids. All the things we completely don't advise people to do after a death because we you never make a decision after someone's passed. And a lot of expectation that I wouldn't be able to manage. And that I think fed my need to be superwoman because I just, I felt, and it was very well-meaning. There was no malice in it. It mm. was just a lack of understanding. So I felt like I had to prove myself. Yeah. And that was tough because you're already dealing with change, huge changes. It's very different from being caring for someone 24-7 to being on your own and then having to navigate people's expectations as well. Yeah. And that would have just been, yeah, a whole yeah different ballpark. A whole different ballpark. And I'm, I think nowadays people are starting to understand more, but it's still... I think that's why I said it was ageist because I'm because of my age. I think mm. a younger woman, perhaps not to this extent. The interesting things is that so many of those people we're trying to be supportive have really changed their tune now. Yeah, and because I've done quite a few things since then that to to for myself. <laughs> And have just celebrated with me. So I think it was, it's almost changed a few attitudes, which I think is a really positive thing. That is, mm. it is really positive mm. as well. And I think I've, I hopefully have done that on my journey as well. And I think mm. we, it, as you said, it's not a matter of being superwoman. It's no. just a matter of trying to comprehend your new life Absolutely. moving forward and whatever that looks like. In, in your situation mm. is incredible because you do a lot, you mm. have done a lot and, and you will continue to do that, yeah. which is incredible. Yeah. But I think also this now we know about grief that we're allowed to remember that person. We don't have to just get over it. We can That part person is still part of our lives. It's yeah. just a different relationship. And I love where I live. I live, I have a beautiful property and a beautiful view over the harbour and absolute pristine most beautiful place but I've made some changes too so I've renoed my house and I did have to change where my bedroom because that was the only place that I found that I was starting to have flashbacks and it was it had got uncomfortable so I didn't move out of my bedroom I just made the bedroom my own so I changed it so I changed the furniture I changed the flooring I changed the cupboards I've changed everything in there yeah it's still my it's still our bedroom but it's now my space and I think that we don't have to change everything but Mm. at the same time we still need to make sure that we've got our own stamp on things too absolutely and so that was seven years ago seven years ago in december yeah Yeah. in december yeah and so a lot has changed since then a lot has changed yeah what have you done i guess you don't have to fully go into it yeah sure well i i went back to my job which i love my job but i realized that i was working very long hours and all weekends and i thought i've got to the age where i probably need to stop doing that because the other thing that happens with this sort of journey is the expectations you've got of the future completely change we're getting towards retirement my husband had semi-retired and was running the property as well as doing another job and he'd been a teacher before as well so you have the expectations of what we're going to do and we were fortunate that we had a few beautiful holidays before he had his accident without our kids Mm. because it's everyone goes oh empty nesters we went oh yes we can do a few things on our own (laughs) so we had some a beautiful holiday up at the Flinders Ranges we really enjoyed it and I know one of the things that really made me very sad after I was starting to clean my husband's stuff up was I found a brochure to go up to the Kimberleys and we always talked about going to the Kimberleys. And I thought, oh, I'm so sad that we haven't done that. And one day I'll go up to the Kimberleys and do it for both of us. And I think that's a really nice thing we can do. But we, expectation was we had a caravan, we're going to go off and do things, we're going to have less time at work. And that changes. And for a lot of people that lose their partner, that's the kicker, what you expected to happen in the future. Does, didn't happen. Yeah. One thing I did do is I, when I realised I was working these ridiculous hours, I took a break and I was going to go overseas and spend some time with my son, a few months overseas, and my youngest daughter and her partner were going to go overseas as well. And then it was 2020. Yes. So COVID hit. 
Having said that, I did go overseas in 2017. I had I had basically the dream holiday. So I went to Europe and went on a riverboat cruise and it was a very good time for me. I did it by myself. I did the riverboat cruise by myself. I did the rest with my son and his family. But it was a very a good time. I talked to lots of people that I hadn't met and I felt it, it was quite a good thing and I felt like I did that for both of us because yeah. we were both going to do that. But... 2020, next trip overseas, I was feeling in a much better space by then. I'd had a lot of support. I'd done some therapy. I was feeling heaps better. And then to, then 2020 came along. We were just about to go overseas when we had got locked down. For me, I had my daughter and her husband with her partner with her. We had our dogs. We'd go to the beach every day. And it was the biggest chill-out time of my life. Yeah. And that's when I renovated my house as well. Mm. And at the end of that time, I decided I didn't want to go back to my work. I didn't want to go back to that full-time so I took some long service leave and I did go and work a little bit and do a few of the th- my passions at school but then at the end of that time I thought I don't want to go back to this but I do need to do something else so I've gone on and done something else I've gone and done a postgraduate degree and very pleased to be doing what I'm doing now absolutely yeah, yeah. and so yeah it is a pretty massive question in which we're getting at but how has cancer changed your life? Yeah. Because you've been affected by two incredibly close mm. people yeah. and you're so strong right now yeah. retelling yeah. this story. And I know it's been a few years, but it's still, it's. Yeah. And it still makes me sad when I talk about it, but it's, I, I think, and I, when I talk to a lot of people about this, because I don't want any of this conversation to be taboo mm. and it's very healing to talk about it, but I think it's also very healing to talk about what a great life we've had before this all happened. I had, my mother was an inspirational woman, inspirational. She was a nurse and she was actually South Australia's top nurse when she graduated. She worked as a volunteer for years. She did run the ambulance service in her country town as a volunteer. She There was four of us, so she was pretty busy with that. And then she went back to nursing later on when we grew up and ended up doing a, making a very large footprint on her town. But everything she did needs to be celebrated. So we don't want the last six weeks of her life to be the focus. She and she was healthy all that time as well. But she and I think if she had been diagnosed with cancer in, when she was younger, she would have probably, first of all, there wouldn't have been the support, medical support back in her day. But at the same time, I think she would have embraced anything she could do. But at the time of life she was in, yeah, and what she was facing, I think felt right for her, and she was very accepting. She was very accepting. There was people kept saying how brave she was, but I think it was more than that. I think it was she was able to reflect on her life and realise it had been wonderful. Yeah. And her future was probably not looking that the same as that. The biggest thing for her was my dad. She was terribly worried about my dad, of course. So she taught me a lot during that process. She taught me that you can you can look back at your relationships in your life in a positive way and celebrate that, even though you've been sick. And she also didn't want us to just make that the focus. And I've, a lot of people with cancer, they really are amazing because it's not their focus. Their yeah. focus is living yeah. and recovery. It's not, I have cancer, I'm a victim. And she was never a victim. And I think my husband was the same. He, he was sad that there were things he wasn't going to be able to do. We weren't going to be able to do. But I think he was happy that we'd had opportunities together and we'd managed to build this place that we have, which was amazing. I think after he, he died, oh no, and the other thing I think that was really important for us is we were not codependent. So we still did our own thing. He was very supportive of me heading off overseas if I wanted to go because he wasn't particularly interested in that because he'd done a lot of travelling when he was younger. And he had things he liked to do by himself. So we, we spent most of our time together, but we were quite happy for each of us to go off with our own interests. And I think that was a very healthy thing. Yeah. So I didn't feel after he went that I was completely... It flattened. Yeah. I knew that I still had other things that were interesting and important to me. And he was always very proud of my achievements over the time. So I think that was helpful as well. But yes, it changes you in many ways. I think it changes you, gives you a new appreciation of things and it changes your priorities. Yeah. And I think anyone that's had cancer would say the same thing. The little you don't sweat the small stuff so much. So yeah. the things that perhaps used to be considered so important change. And your priorities change. So my priorities have changed so much, hence why I've stopped working the crazy hours I was working because I thought there's more to life than this. And and it also gave me permission perhaps to pursue 
things that I'm really passionate about and I am very passionate about palliative care and that's after um, my husband died. A palliative care team in, in Port Lincoln where I live, unbelievable. And I was able to make some changes and I got on my bandwagon and I wrote to the minister about home hospice because that wasn't quite up and running then, it is now. And also the palliative care medication, that changed. So now it's free in the hospital, whereas I was paying for it. So I found that very therapeutic, getting Mm -hmm. on my bandwagon and trying to support the places that had supported me. And I did a lot of that. That was really good. It empowered me in some ways, although it was a terrible thing to have happened for me and such a sad thing. It's given me a lot of positives at the other end. And I know many people now, because of the age I am at, that have experienced cancer and the same look at they look at their lives and they go well I want to still want to do this so we're going to do this and this and it's almost empowering for them to be able to reflect so much on their on the positive marks they've left and to keep going yeah and I look at the treatment now for say breast cancer many women my age have breast cancer or have had breast cancer and they go on and they're fine so it's a different it's a very different from when I was young yeah. Yeah, and that it goes back to what we were first talking about in terms of it's a different time. It is definitely a different time. And that's yeah. something that I often touch on when I'm discussing with someone that's just recently been diagnosed. And obviously there's hope and all you can do is try and try and be as positive as you can Absolutely. and look after yourself and try to surround yourself with as much love as you can. And some people don't have that. Yeah. And also some people aren't as lucky to still be here like mm. myself, yeah. which I'm very grateful for. But it, it's like statistics are scary in that yeah. one in two people soon will be affected by cancer. And um, that's massive. Hence why mm. I want to do something like this so that yourself and I can talk about it yeah. and talk about coping mechanisms and mm. different ways in which it helped us throughout yeah. our journey. And, uh, but as you said... Treatment has changed immensely. Yeah. And, and also that early intervention. Like, I think I, I have every test I can have. Yeah. So I have my breast can- screens. In fact, I have them every year because my sister had breast cancer. Yeah. And it's fine. You know, she's caught very early and she's wonderful. So I have every kind of test I can have. I have no, and I really encourage other people. And that's something else people can do. Yeah. I've had friends that have said, oh, I don't want to do that in case they find something wrong. And I'm going, but if you find something wrong, you can fix it. Yeah. So it's that headspace around you can fix things. So every kind of early, inter- any kind of test or thing that's offered to me, I take. Yeah. I have a te- I have everything as regularly. And I, my headspace is if, I, if they find something, they can fix it. Yeah. I haven't got a headspace of, because a couple of people have said to me, oh, people you've loved, they haven't been able to do anything. And I said, well, that's the exception. Yeah. It's very unusual not to be able to treat things. Yeah. So symptoms, deal with them, get in early and actually... Get it checked out and be insistent. So if someone ignores something, you'd go and see someone else because things are very fixable. Yeah. And even chemo, I've had so many friends that I know that have gone through chemo and they've just managed so well. So a lot of fear around treatment. There's so much change. Yeah, yeah. there's a lot of change. Yeah. Like even I was talking to a mate the other day and I was talking about how I'm like just getting on track in terms of saving money again and that kind of stuff. And he was like, I don't understand where your money goes and I'm like well firstly cost of living is high but also I need to get checked for peace of mind and also to be on top of things and also as you just said to prevent something it's not going to touching wood it's not going to but in case it could absolutely yeah and and the fear that people have of finding out is the thing we need to change yeah because back when I was a little girl the fear of finding out often meant that you weren't going to get better. Now finding out often meant... So people are still frightened of that, and particularly older people, because their experiences in their youth were that you didn't get better. And now you can. The earlier we can find things... And I look at my... Both my situations were really tricky because there wasn't a lot of lead-in, particularly with my mum. It was very subtle things. And for my husband, once again, he wasn't getting symptoms particularly that I really thought about except the weight loss and Mm. so if people dramatically losing weight and go to the doctor they will immediately test you yeah so it's that constant monitoring and checking and also telling other people if you notice something going on for someone else I remember my dear dad he was in London at one stage and he noticed a taxi driver in London had a melanoma on his neck and of course in in England they don't know much about skin cancers and things like that and he said to him you need to go to the doctor and he said why and he said well you've got what looks like a very severe 
skin cancer. And the guy said, I think I will. Dad never got a follow-up because that was back before mobile phones and things. Yeah. But he hoped that he did go and actually get that checked out. Yeah. Mm. yeah. And that's I put a lot of emphasis on that in this mm. podcast. Like yeah. I've had the pleasure of living in Cairns last year and meeting so many backpackers and that kind of stuff. And I'm like, you need to get your skin checked. It doesn't matter if you've been here for two weeks or if yeah. you're going to be living in an Australian summer Absolutely. or even any summer for that matter. And it's yeah. just something that, I don't know, I think we're fortunate here in Australia that regardless of if you are listening or not or you're open to it, there is a lot of emphasis on getting yourself checked. Yep. Whether people participate in that or not is another question. Yep. And also there could be more. There could be a lot more encouragement. Yeah. 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 And it's interesting because my husband, when he was growing up, was a smoker. And he also, before he was a teacher, he was a motor mechanic. So I used to work with unshielded brake lines and things like that. So there was probably a lot of reasons why he got lung cancer. But I I always had to almost stick up for him because people would be quite judgmental around that. And back in our day, everyone smoked. And if you go to Europe, everybody smokes. It's quite scary. And... We have to not make people blamed for what's happened to them. 100%. Yeah, and, but you still get that, don't you? People, If people are smoking, people can be very supportive around helping them, not yeah. blaming them. Yeah. And it's the same with every incidence that are preventable cancer. We need to encourage people not to feel like they're being vilified for it, 100%. but to support them. Yep. Yeah. And that being said, cancer can affect anyone at any point. Oh, it's not absolutely. associated to anything no. whatsoever. Sometimes, yes, it may be, but... Yeah. Most of the time it's not. Yeah. And I know even my mum, my mum lived a very blameless life and mm. she ended up with multiple, probably began in her breast, but not sure. And uh, there was no way that she should have been vilified for getting cancer. Yeah. And so we have to be very careful, much the way, same way we have to be very careful when we talk about women that have been widowed. Yeah. Expectations. So the expectations on people don't help. Yeah. 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 I guess I'll wrap things up in terms of, this episode and I know I asked if you had any advice for people that were going into a caring situation, a carer situation, but if there's any advice you could give to anyone in regards to being affected by cancer currently, if they're going through it, if they're at the end of their journey, if, yeah, is there any advice you can give them? Well, that's a hard question. It's a massive question. Um, I think hope is really important. Yeah. There's always hope and think about, think, consider yourself. So many people always worry about everybody else. There are times when you need to consider yourself and I think that's the time. And remember that and think about your priorities. You know, what's really important in life? Is it really important that you go to this meeting at this time? Probably not. So even if you can start to consider a list of what really matters to you, it doesn't have to be a bucket list, but just a gentle little list of things that you really would like to do or you would like some support with. So it's a self-care. There's my little tip. Yeah. Okay. Look after thyself. Look after thyself.